0: In broad strokes, what I'm interested in is, as, um, as uh, the biography that Daphna outlined kind of um, telegraphs uh, is basically uh, thinking about the role of human judgment um, in a world that's going to be kind of increasingly uh, mediated by and perhaps even more um, uh, uh, firmly sort of controlled by um, automated and other kinds of, uh, uh, machine-based, um, decision-making systems. Uh, so at least in the United States, it's, it's, uh, pretty commonplace in lots of jurisdictions now to have, um, risk prediction algorithms be part of pretrial detention decisions and sentencing decisions. It's pretty common for police departments to use predictive analytics to make deployment decisions about where they send, um, you know, patrol units and basically what kinds of crime patterns they want to focus their attention on. Um, It's pretty common for bureaucratic agencies like Social Security administrations and various parts of the immigration system to rely on algorithmic profiles, essentially, in terms of triaging cases and diverting them to the right parts of the bureaucracy. Um, And so, uh, you know, these developments are, are kind of going on you know, worldwide now, uh, um, at least in the, in the, in the developed world. And, you know, they're only going to intensify. And the trend line basically seems to be uh, one in which um, an increasing share of decisions that were sort of former, formerly entrusted to human experts of some kind. And expertise has a wide range. It can be, you know, deep expertise that requires long time to cultivate and a real kind of specialized skill set, or it can be like, the expertise of a bureaucrat is not necessarily all that uh, uh, hard to come by, but it is nevertheless kind of in a contextual way, a form of expertise um, that, that the questions that have been traditionally entrusted to human expertise are um, instead going to be delegated in whole or in part to uh, powerful machines that are uh, capable of, um, pr- of, of processing a sufficient volume of historical data uh, that they can basically um, uh, uh, sort of resolve individual cases according um, to complex historical patterns at a rate um, that is sort of much more efficient in terms of the marginal cost of decision-making and often more accurate in terms of the minimization of type one and type two errors than the uh, human expert version um, of of the uh, same decision. And um, there's been a lot of uh, work on uh, some of the concerns that really sort of um, attend to the design of algorithmic or kind of powerful machine uh, learning-based decision-making systems. Um, I'm sure many, many of you in the audience are familiar with the a kind of burgeoning conversation around the problem of uh, what's often referred to as bias in, bias out, or sort of the replication of the discriminatory or disparate patterns historically through the use of historical data sets. So, you know, it, it, in the criminal justice space, which is where I um, tend to kind of live and work, uh, this, this problem is, you know, very easy to see in the sense that You know, if you're trying to say uh, predict the risk that that a given defendant is going to recidivate, that they're going to commit another crime, or you're trying to predict where crime is going to be in terms of which neighborhoods or or which 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 people in a you know in a social network are likely to commit crimes. Well, all of those predictions are going to be um, tracking. you know, they're only going to be as good as the historical data sets that inform them. And the historical data sets that inform them are going to be in large measure from the law enforcement system itself, or maybe law enforcement records, plus a whole bunch of other data. And of course, when the law enforcement system has historically been um, biased in different ways, or has, you know, involved in its application, many different kinds of disparity, including most obviously kind of racial disparities in, in the US, then those patterns are going to be picked up in the uh, machine systems going forward. And so there's a concern that the machine systems are, are maybe not only going to replicate historical patterns, they might move beyond them in some ways, but that there's going to be a kind of a positive feedback loop vis-a-vis historical patterns. Um, so that's a really important set of debates, one that um, uh, I've, I've been involved in to some extent, but, um, but, but, but I'm actually interested in a slightly different kind of adjacent question, which is, uh, even if we could, uh, uh, imagine as a matter of sort of, uh, normative theory and then corresponding data science, um, solving for the pro- for the kind of bias in bias out or, or sort of discriminatory algorithm problem. So even if we could imagine machine systems that were designed on purpose to kind of overcome that problem or to mitigate it such that machine decision-making through time became less biased and relative to um, uh, human uh, expert judgment perhaps even quite a bit less biased or, or, or sort of um, uh, favorable on, on sort of discrimination or historical quality grounds. Um, is there something that would nevertheless be kind of uh, missing in a world where we delegated really important decision-making um, to machines? uh is there something about human judgment as a kind of a faculty or a cognitive process or a uh vehicle for moral sentiment or there's different ways to talk about it and we'll get into it today but is there something about human judgment as a process that uh seems um to kind of resist automation in whole or in part so is there something about what humans do when they make decisions particularly normatively tinged decisions um, that just can't really be fully replicated by an automated system, however powerful it may be. Um, that's, that's the question that has been preoccupying me. And so uh, one, one um, you know, so if that's the question, sort of what about human judgment seems to be sort of insusceptible all the way down to an automated substitute or a machine-based substitute? Um, I think there's kind of, two ways to to think about answering that question or there are two there are two sort of distinct types of reasons why we might be skeptical that human judgment is susceptible to automation or put the other way around two different kinds of reasons why we might think that there's something kind of special or irreplaceable about human judgment so one kind of reason um uh uh which i'll just put my cards on the table I, i I think is not going to be the, um, uh, the, uh, the winning reason at the end of the day or in the end. But one kind of reason, which has been gotten a little bit of traction and folks are sort of talking about now, is that there's something about the ability of, of humans in exercising and using the kind of the hardware of the human brain Uh, with the inputs of all sort of historical experience, individual and collective that inform human judgment, that sort of equip us as as moral and epistemic agents to make judgments in the world. There's something about that that is capable, at least in some cases, of generating better results. So humans will be able to get at least certain kinds of cases right in a way that machines may not be able to or at least there's reason in principle to think so. Uh, uh, so uh, an argument along these lines might be something like, look, um, you know, machines are going to be really good at canvassing cases that um, uh, kind of track aggregate patterns or cases that look like the normal case or the median case, even if it's not a perfect exemplar case, but is kind of near the exemplar or near the median. You know, machines are going to be really, really good at cases that are kind of normal in that sense. Even if the even if the category of a normal case is a, is a sort of a broad, variegated one, the idea is like, look, if the case is of the kind that the decision making system has been designed to resolve, uh, then machines performing an aggregate analysis, you know, uh, uh, at a at again a kind of a lower cost and much higher volume rate than a human ever could is going to be uh, uh, probably, ultimately, the better decision-making vehicle. However, this is, this is where the argument goes. <coughs> Excuse me. Or at least this is one version of the argument. Um, however, when you have a real outlier case, when you have a true edge case, something that's genuinely different from a historical pattern and a little bit weird in whatever way, um that's where human judgment is going to be uh kind of better even in principle or there's grounds to think that sort of even under very very kind of projecting into the future powerful technological conditions that that human judgment will be able to identify and resolve outlier cases better than a machine system will be able to so to take a concrete example of this to sort of flesh out this form of argument um you know you might say some of you are probably familiar with efforts to sort of train machine learning algorithms to recognize visual patterns, you know? So can you get a machine to figure out if, if something is a picture of a flower, let's say? Well, uh, the machine, it turns out, uh, at least under current technological conditions, we can get machines to be really, really good at this, you know, if you're trying to recognize, let's say, um, uh, like, a, like a dandelion or a rose or something, right? We get the machine to be really, really good at it, Except there's always going to be a margin of cases where something looks so much like a rose or a dandelion from the machine perspective, but from a human perspective, it's obvious that it's that it's, that it's not a flower. Um, and the idea is that you know because uh, 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 of the sort of outlier quality of these cases, you know, the machine might be really good if you just randomly pulled images off of Google or something and put it in front of the machine and said, is this a flower or not? The machine's going to have a really, really high precision, a recall rate, right? Very few type one or type two errors, except in these marginal outlier cases, which are, uh, the cases that the human sort of can intervene in and say, yeah, I see why the machine might've thought that that was a rose. But in fact, that was a picture of a fire truck, you know, taken at a particular angle, or I can see why, um, Uh, the machine thought that that was a dandelion, but in fact, uh, that was a road sign, you know, or whatever. And, and so the idea is that, I mean, in the, in the flower case, it's trivial, it's sort of, you know, I don't know why we would care about that function, but maybe we would, we, you know, if we cared about that function, for some reason, we might just decide that we're okay with the machine system, um, because of the efficiency gain, and because they're going to get 99.999% of cases, right, and the ones that, they don't get right, whatever. You know, the human system's going to make a lot of errors too, and so on. Net, we're just okay with the machines. But in more sensitive contexts, like deciding how long somebody deserves to be incarcerated, or deciding, you know, who gets to, um, you know, remain in the country they call home rather than being forcibly removed, or you know, anything that sort of has a has has the usual indicia of a sort of a due process problem, the kind of gravity, exercises of violence, draconian penalties, that sort of thing when we're in those realms, we do care about outlier cases. And the role then for human judgment, at least at a minimum, maybe maybe we want a bigger role for human judgment, but at a minimum, the part of human judgment that is not going to be automatable away, why we wouldn't want to turn over the reins of the system to a machine, is to identify those outliers and make sure that they're being sort of uh, uh, disposed of justly. Um, Okay, so that argument has lots of, uh, that's just one example of the kind of argument that would focus on human decision-making or human human judgment yielding better results than the machine equivalent. But by category, this is a a familiar idea and it's one that has gotten a fair amount of airtime relatively recently. And the idea again is that there's something about human judgment as a kind of information processing mechanism that is able to just capture and better resolve certain categories of cases, even in principle, even if the machines were really, really powerful than a machine could do. Um, so that's one way of sort of, of of thinking about what might be special or important about human judgment. The second way, which is what I'm gonna talk more about today is thinking of not so much about the content of the judgment or the results of the decision, um, uh, but instead thinking about some, some kind of Normative feature of the decision making process that makes human judgment a kind of necessary ingredient to that decision making process, regardless of what the results are, regardless of what the content of the judgment ultimately is. So, um, one one, one idea along these lines I've developed in a recent paper, and this is what Marcus circulated, I think, so some of you um, in the audience have seen it, um, is an argument that. There's, a, there's an idea that kind of follows from first principles of democratic theory. So it's a sort of political theory idea of role reversibility as between the party who is exercising judgment and the party who is affected by the judgment. And the idea here is that look, regardless of what the judgment is, whether it's guilty or innocent, whether it's harsh or lenient, you know, whether it's the case goes in this category or that category or whatever, that the, the, the fact that the party who is subject to the judgment and the potential adverse consequences that follow from the judgment is in principle reversible with or kind of um, uh, uh, could have their positions sort of swapped with the party who is charged with making the judgment. So the judge and the affected party or the juror and the defendant, or there's different sort of paradigmatic examples of this, but the one who kind of you know uh, 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 holds the sword or, or sort of, Hold, you know, holds the reins of the apparatus of power, and the one who is subject to its operation. That those two parties could, in in a slightly different counterfactual world, they could be um, switched. So the 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 judge or the juror who is exercising, uh, you, you know, or or who is deciding whether um, the use of uh, state violence in a purposive way uh, that we would refer to as criminal punishment is warranted in a given case that they too could be subject to that state violence had they committed the same offense or had the facts been all the same except that they're the one in the defendant's chair, not the one in the seat of judgment. So the idea here is that uh, by contrast to accounts that would want to talk about Human judgment as a safeguard of kind of better resolution of cases, or of this of the sort of substance of judgment, or the content of judgment. This is really about uh, the structural sort of sort of features of the decision making environment, and specifically about uh, the the kind of um, the kind of fundamental uh, equality and fungibility of persons. So in the paper, we we tie this to a political theory tradition that I think is most prominently associated with John Rawls, but but you could find, and, and, and we explore a few other kind of um, uh, parallels, uh, that there's, that there are ways to understand sort of Kantian morality along these lines too, but the basic intuition and the way in which it's connected to democratic um, sort of governance and, 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 and sort of uh, self-governance as, a, as an ideal is the idea that we are all kind of co-equal uh, and that when, when even even in moments where we've decided to um, uh, exercise judgment or where one of us or some group of us is called upon as, as, as co-equal members of a polity to stand in judgment of another, that we are in some sense also judging ourselves counterfactually, that all judgments are things that we are willing in the same way that Rawls would say that we're on burden when we design kind of legal systems or when we design rules and regulations at the sort of legislative and administrative level, the right way to think about that is would be, would we be willing to do this to everyone? Or would I be willing to commit to a world in which these rules obtain, even if I didn't know what position I was going to be in? Um, uh, So too, with individual acts of judgment, we should sort of have this role reversibility, structural kind of equality principle in place uh, that allows judgment to be imagined as uh, something that we are kind of imposing upon ourselves or that we would be willing to be subject to uh, if we were in the opposite role. Um, and likewise, that the person who is in the role of receiving potentially adverse treatment on the basis of a, of a negative judgment, like a defendant, a criminal defendant, can, can then sort of uh, account for what has happened in a way that imagines themselves as, as uh, uh, as they might have been had the rules been reversed, than they were in the jury box. So there's a way in which the account here of criminal adjudication or of a conviction would be one in which you know beyond a reasonable doubt um, uh, to convict is essentially to say that the defendant him or herself, had they been in the jury box, would have convicted, having seen the facts presented in this way. Okay, so. That was the idea that we developed in 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 this paper um and and my 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 sense is that um that this notion of rule reversibility um is a sort of sturdier basis and i think a, a kind of clarifying basis on which to argue in favor of certain aspects of human judgment being kind of insusceptible to automation um because uh uh it really has to do uh just like democratic sort of precepts have in other contexts you know long before powerful machines have always kind of had to do with a sense of self-rule so ultimately what grounds the legitimacy or at any rate what's a necessary condition of legitimacy is the sense that that um law and exercises of state violence are something that we do to ourselves that's the kind of um core axiom as I, would, as I would articulate it of, uh, of liberal democracy. And that um, in the same way we draw an analogy in this paper to uh, caste systems and to kind of colonial or imperial rule that like in the same way that we, we can recognize that there may well be imperial structures or caste systems or other kinds of r- rigid stratification that are, that, are, that are illiberal or kind of anti-democratic, that are still pretty just. They still are pretty good at delivering the right results in lots of cases or in uh, uh, coming to the right sort of distir- distributive equilibria in terms of uh, benefits and liabilities within a social order, allocative efficiency, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They, at some level, it doesn't matter, right? You can't defend an imperial regime on the ground, like at least if one is a Democrat, small d democrat you can't defend an imperial regime on the ground that it uh tends to produce uh really good results um you're gonna have to say something more about how it might be reimaginable as a kind of mechanism of self-rule or there may be kind of less daylight than we like to think between democratic structures and um and uh imperial or or kind of uh, more fundamentally hierarchical structures and indeed uh, even within democratic contexts, often the claim of, you know, typically takes place on the fringes politically, but the cl- but there's always an opportunity to make a claim that this looks democratic or formally it's democratic, like everyone went to the ballot box and, you know, there's public accountability, but in fact, this is being experienced as a kind of imperial rule domestically, right? A rule from without, rule by elites, rule by others, plutocracy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The variations on that kind of move are infinite, but the idea is that I think it comes back to some notion that this role reversibility idea has been violated and that the same is true with machine rule. So uh, I would say that the right analogy to think about what sort of rule by machines, even when they're really powerful and really efficient and really good at coming to the right results in, in the aggregate, uh, that the right analogy is not you know, to just like the machines are basically implementation tools and they're basically just like an administrative bureaucracy of the kind that we're all used to, the right analogy is to an imperial structure. The right analogy is to uh, a, a, a sort of a, a rule, uh, you know, from the metropole, from far away, um, which, and it has all the usual infirmities. Okay, so that's, that's the idea that I was exploring in this uh, previous paper. And what I want to talk to you about here f- for uh, a couple more minutes today is, uh, it is an extension of the same core idea that moves in a slightly different direction or, or, or you might say, tries out a different form of the um, human judgment is important and insusceptible to automation argument, uh, not on results grounds, but on kind of process grounds, but in a slightly different way. Um, and uh, th- this, this new argument um, sort of picks up where the previous paper left off and that it's trying to think about what the, what the sense of sort of co-equality and role reversibility is between the party exercising judgment and the party undergoing judgment sort of means and why it matters. So one, one thing it can mean, or why it matters, as I was just describing, is simply that we might see it as an instantiation of a democratic ideal and that its absence likewise would be an instantiation of a kind of imperial uh, um, alternative to democracy. And so on that basis alone, uh, in terms of just what what about the, the the power structure uh it reflects or what about the political world it it sort of it sort of reflects um will uh, will will become you know the basis on which to uh uh kind of lionize um uh you know human judgment in this role reversible fashion what i'm exploring in this new paper is what what kind what what uh sort of of Process of judgment, the role reversibility um, ideal, or the kind of the democratic co- equality ideal as between human beings, uh, may um, enable what kind of judgment that is distinct from focusing on the results of judgment, but is but is also um, uh, slightly different from just the claim that it is an instantiation of sort of uh, democratic uh, precepts and. Specifically, I'm interested in um, moments uh, in our institutional and in everyday kind of moral, so the institutional legal lives and everyday moral lives, when, uh, in response to, to um, uh, the the possibility of exercising judgment uh, uh, regarding another person's actions or choices we feel like the proper response as, as moral agents is to decline to judge. So not to be lenient in the sense of, let them off the hook or acquit them or say that what they did was okay, uh, but instead to sort of take a step back and decide that, um, uh, that we lack grounds to actually render judgment. It's something about the situation and something about the specific um, kind of moral psychological world that the case calls forth for the person in the seat of judgment uh, makes it so that judgment seems unwarranted one way or the other um, so I'll I'll, I'll unpack us a little more in the abstract uh, by, by by kind of talking through what I take to be its kind of theological paradigm case um, uh, which is the parable from um, John 8 about uh, casting stones or Christ's admonition to, um, uh, to uh, those who would cast uh, stones uh, um, against a sinner that they should consider their own position before they do so. And lo and behold, once they do that, everyone sort of puts their stones down instead of, instead of exercising judgment or punishment. Um, and then I'll talk about some more concrete examples from the uh, legal system. So you know, the core idea here is is basically that, um, you know, if we think about that story. So what happens in that story? For those of you, you know, you, you may have sort of learned about it, you know, in, in, a, in your own religious education or just through sort of cultural lore or, you know, even just, you know, heard about it by other means. But basically, um, you know, uh, uh, Christ is is causing a lot of headaches for the um uh, the the power structure in Rome, um, to put it mildly, and one of Christ's main sort of calls to his followers is um, to sort of move, you know, beyond beyond the law, or to kind of recognize a, a distinction between human authority and divine authority, and to prioritize divine authority, which of course causes a lot of problems for those who are in the position of human authority and wish to remain so. Um, so the backdrop of the story is that, is that a number of the, the Pharisees, basically sort of Christ critics, come and they dragged a, a sinner to the town square, um, uh, uh, an adulteress. Uh, and uh, the punishment, pre- pretty clearly, like we'd say in the law, sort of as a matter of, uh, you know, the plain text, Of the statute as it were or this sort of the clear the clear command of the law is that adultery is punishable by death so it's a capital offense and there's really no dispute that this person has committed adultery and so the reason why the pharisees have sort of brought this to christ's attention is because they want to basically embarrass christ's moral position or his kind of antinomian position that human law isn't worth a whole heck of a lot and that divine authority is the more important thing and the way they're going to do this is they're going to say, look, Christ, what do you do in this case? It's one thing to say, look, we want to move toward a world where we have better laws or where we don't need laws anymore. But here's a case where somebody has committed adultery and the law is really clear. So what are you going to do? What are you going to say? You say that the law doesn't apply. Or you're going to say that, you know, um, uh, capital punishment is warranted. You know, what are you going to do? So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a, a supposed to be a gotcha moment. So what does Christ do? He says, um, uh, well, first he says nothing. He kind of pretends like he doesn't hear what, what's, what's been said. And when pressed, he says, all right, I'll tell you what, everyone who came here with a stone to cast against this person to basically, you know, it's, it's a collective, uh, flagellation ritual. That's, that's the mechanism of capital punishment. You're going to throw stones at this person. Um, everyone who came with a stone, uh, think about if you've ever sinned, Right. Think about your own moral position introspect at a kind of moral level as a moral agent and decide whether you feel warranted in carrying out this execution ritual now and then everyone lo and behold once they once they go through this cognitive process they they famously put down their stones they decline to cast the stones they all walk away and then christ turns to the uh the sinner and he says you know oh i see that nobody is here to cast stones against you they've all Walked away, and I too, uh, uh, you know, decline to judge, or I too sort of refuse um, to cast stones, and so you're free to go. So, it seems to me that th- that what's what's powerful, what's so powerful about this parable, and 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 the reason why it seems like a valuable kind of lodestar for thinking about human judgment, is that is that Christ is not asking the sinners. Uh, or or I'm sorry, not the sinners, the onlookers, to regard the sinner's case differently than they otherwise might. So we have a a rich tradition in our legal institutions that I think reaches back to Aristotle and maybe further that we, we think of as the equity tradition that would say, look, you know, rules are really coarse, rules are really crude, you know, they're designed to work at a level of generality that necessarily generalizes and so is going to not, you know, is going to suppress some of the underlying complexity of particular cases. That's the point of a rule. And so what do we do when we're confronted with a case like I was describing a few minutes ago, you might, you might call an outlier case, a case that doesn't really seem to fit within the four corners of the rule or even even at the kind of outer edges of the rule, but instead seems to sort of, you know, Only, only uh, uh, a fall into the rules category as a formal matter, but in, but in an underlying way seems not to fit. What do we do? We make equitable adjustments and we have mechanisms in the law to do this. Literally, you know, courts of equity used to do this. Equitable remedies do this. There's all kinds of of other mechanisms, even if they're not labeled as equity that do this right there are kind of fine grain adjustments, right? Somebody, let's say, been convicted of a crime. Well, from there, the judge is going to have a lot of discretion to engage in sentencing analysis that, that that attends to mitigating and aggravating factors and is basically trying to come up with a more granular analysis than just yes, no, were they guilty, right? We have all kinds of, of, of tools to do this, to particularize and further refine judgments. Um, and obviously this is part of our everyday moral lives too, right? If we're having a debate about someone, like we just had a debate in the United States, it's a prolonged public debate about whether this uh, uh, kid in in uh, Wisconsin who decided to become a vigilante and ended up killing a number of people, you know, was sort of guilty and why, and uh, uh, you know, or, or if he's justified and so why. And, 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 and in the process of trying to come up with a coherent sort of explanation of that for ourselves and collectively, we, we, we naturally gravitate toward, or at least one kind of aspect of the debate is always gonna be, is your analysis sufficiently granular, right? You want to apply rules, moral systems, legal systems are built on rules at some level, but we need to have case specific adjustment. Okay. But that is not what Christ is telling the onlookers to do, right? He's not saying, look, yes, she committed adultery, but here's some mitigating facts or yes, she committed adultery. But once you hear her side of the story, uh, you'll see that it was excused in some way or there, or she was operating under duress or, you know, whatever, any number of things that might be specific to the case, and make the judgment more particularized in the favor of of what we would call in contemporary terms an acquittal. So it's like, yes, she looks guilty in the same way that somebody who acted in self-defense, did they formally speaking use violent force on purpose against another person? Yes, but nevertheless, we have this case specific, highly particularized contextual mechanism for figuring out whether, whether an adverse judgment is actually warranted in their case. That's not what Christ is asking for, nor is he saying that you should exercise mercy or sort of forbearance against you or you know, toward this person uh, uh, in the sense that, yeah, they're guilty, but for some kind of reason based on pity or compassion or you know, something about their case, a great pathos of it, you know, let's say, you know, the sinner has lots of young children and they're gonna go hungry if, 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 if the sinner is put to death or whatever, right? It's not that either. It's not about, okay, you have good grounds to judge, Absolutely. And once we apply all the equitable adjustments, in fact, harsh judgment is warranted here in the sense that the right application of the right sufficiently granular rule system would be one that yielded judgment in this case, or yielded adverse judgment. But nevertheless, you should sort of forbear upon that judgment, or you should um, treat the sinner to a less harsh punishment in practice than you would be justified in treating them to in principle. No, it's not that either. It's instead... By contrast to both of those models, and there's a very rich tradition of thinking about the relationship between equity and mercy as it surfaces in the law and elsewhere, a lot of very interesting uh, you know, philosophy and legal theory on that question. But by contrast to both of those models, what Christ, I think, is asking uh, the onlookers to do is perform a different kind of cognitive operation, one that is about introspection and about considering whether they have grounds to exercise judgment in the first instance. So it's not Make your judgment more granular, nor is it, okay, harsh judgment is warranted, but here are some countervailing reasons why you might not want to carry through on the implementation of the penalty. Uh, But instead, do you have grounds to judge at all? Do you have grounds to judge at all? We can see this contrast, especially from mercy, in the way that the parable continues once the onlookers have put down their stones and gone away. And Christ then turns to the adulteress and says, I see that none of your fellow men are willing to, you know, cast a stone against you. I, too... You know sort of um uh, uh uh refuse but when christ refuses um uh that that is more that sounds more in mercy that sounds more in as a divine figure i am capable of judging and but as at least in the christian tradition we've sort of long associated with divinity there's a there's a there's a sense in which the merciful attitude of the divine is one of the constitutive features of divinity and that And that God judges, but it also has the capacity to uh, forgive or forbear. Um, And it's appropriate, at least arguably, at least more appropriate than it would be with the human onlookers for Christ to be in the merciful mode because Christ is, after all, differently situated. For the human onlookers, though, the merciful mode is not only not what Christ is calling upon them uh, uh, to to sort of channel, but indeed might itself be somewhat inappropriate in the sense that as co-equal, Uh, sort of uh, members of the social order, right? Uh, uh, The question that Christ is sort of calling their attention to is whether in reverse, you know, uh, uh, they would have done the same thing or whether they are sort of um, uh, have the requisite moral position um, to engage in in, um, judgment. And what this, you know, the answer isn't necessarily that they don't have the requisite foundation for engaging in the judgment. That's what happens to be the case in the story. But it's perfectly possible that somebody kind of heeding this admonition, if they were a saint, saintly person or sort of uh, morally morally righteous type who had, who, who had not sinned in their life, they might well say, yeah, you know, I've thought this through and I do have grounds to judge. I feel like judgment is warranted here. Um, but the point is that you have to go through this kind of threshold step in deciding whether to exercise judgment in the first instance. So there's a rough analogy in terms of uh, legal categories here uh, between what lawyers would refer to as the jurisdictional question and then the merits question. So, you know, courts, when they decide whether they're going to resolve a case or how they're going to resolve a case, need to assure themselves that they have jurisdiction over the case in the first instance. That's kind of the backdrop of all law. Now, in many cases, it will be uncontroversial. Nobody will be disputing it. But the court's sort of always on burden to explain or assure itself that it has jurisdiction. That's, that's one heuristical way at least of understanding the claim I'm making here, that there's some sense in which as moral agents and then as, as, as kind of uh, 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 members of a social order called on instrumentally in certain institutional capacities like on a jury trial or whatever to exercise legal judgment, not just moral judgment. Either way, there's some sense that we should be on burden to evaluate whether the grounds exist at all. Okay, and so the reason why I think this is at least plausibly a way of thinking about what is kind of non-automatable about human judgment is that it seems like, or the 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 sort of intuition I'm exploring in this new project, and I am really looking forward to hearing people's thoughts and questions about it, is is the idea that basically. Um, uh, Deciding whether you have good grounds to exercise judgment, whatever the results of the judgment, whether harsh or lenient, uh, on an all things considered analysis using all the normal sort of tools of judgment, the application of rules subject to equitable adjustments, subject to potential sort of mercy or other forbearance mechanisms, et cetera, et cetera, right? The complexities that always attend to what the right judgment is in the case. Before you get there, you have to figure out Whether it is warranted to exercise judgment at all or instead to abstain or to decline to decline to cast your stone to put your stone down not in the sense that that the person is again on a more equitable nuanced analysis not guilty nor a sense that they deserve mercy, but on the sense that you are not in the position as the party exercising judgment to pronounce one way or the other maybe somebody else would be maybe um, divine figure would be and in fact as it relates to the christian tradition this is a this is a this is a rich sort of trope and idea that we are um, uh, um, not to stand in judgment of one another in certain respects in part because uh uh god will or that there is sort of a different kind of judgment coming um but that whatever the the exact backdrop of it is that some evaluation has to be given to whether Foundation for Judgment exists, and that that is the thing that an automated decision-making system, uh, even if it replicated human intelligence or human um, uh, uh, cognition in other respects, would not necessarily be capable of because the um, success of that operation the sense in which the decision about whether one has good grounds to judge is successful or not uh, or is satisfying or not to the affected party and to the, to the world and to the agent himself is not, uh, is not something that um, can be uh, reduced to the manipulation of information <clears throat> in, any, in any kind of non-contextual way. So, of course, all problems are informational problems at some level of generality, but there's a sense in which what one is called on to do or what I would understand this parable in John 8 to be sort of talking about or the way I'm interpreting Christ's admonition to consider whether one should cast a stone or not is to is to introspect and think about one's own kind of um, uh, moral psychological situation vis-a-vis the the um, the other party and the conduct that they are accused of um, and decide whether as a matter of individual conscience um, or as a matter of sort of individual moral psychology, um, judgment seems warranted. And I think that that question by its nature has no abstractable answer. So it's, so it's indeterminate. It does not give us nothing about this operation. It is, is, is um, meant to kind of give us an algorithm of any sort about whether we do indeed in, in any given context have good grounds to judge or not. The point is not to say that we don't. It's, it's simply to say that that's a that's a hurdle that has to be cleared before judgment um, can be uh, uh, authorized, or might say before judgment can um, be carried out in a way that is sort of satisfying uh, or kind of legitimate in ways that we've traditionally um, uh, thought uh, is 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 you know required for the for the maintenance of a of a kind of a, a just legitimate legal order. So. That's the, that's the idea. I think I'll end there. And um, I'm sure there will be some questions and I look forward to them and we'll get into some concrete examples through um, Q&A and uh, But, but hopefully that gives you a little bit of a sketch of the terrain that I'm working in here.